Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. An ongoing interest of this show is what happens when people have the best intentions. Now, usually we talk about that in terms of relationships and politics. Today, we're going to talk about the absolute best intentions one can have. Literally, the absolute best. Perfection. The intention of perfection in, you know, the world. Today, we're going to talk about utopias. We're going to talk about them with Avery Truffleman. She's a staff producer at the design podcast 99% Invisible. She hosts her own spinoff podcast called Articles of Interest. That's about fashion. And she most recently has become the host of Nice Try, a podcast from Curbed and Vox Media about utopias. And before we talk to her, just going to give you a, a little taste. I think this example will show you something that Avery and I wind up coming back to a few times, which is somebody's utopia is always someone else's dystopia. Lawson Deming works in visual effects. And in 2015, he was tasked with digitally recreating a city that never was. A task not unlike rebuilding a Mesopotamia or a Babylon. Deming had some source material to go off of for this lost city. There are blueprints for it and detailed maps and, and models, architectural models. But it was up to him to put these maps and models together to render an image of Adolf Hitler's proposed redesign for Berlin. Germania, or Germania as it's now known, would be Hitler's ideal version of the capital of the Third Reich. This, you may say, is not a utopia. I agree. It was a utopia that my grandmother had to flee from. A utopia that was built, as many utopias are, on land that was already in use. For Hitler, a new capital would be a revision, like ethnic cleansing and genocide wasn't enough. He had to raise Berlin to the ground and start anew. This was his utopia. Avery, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. So you're you're here to talk about Nice Try, which focused on yes. utopias. Mm-hmm. And I think there are probably some people that might not understand why I feel like your show is a perfect fit to talk about on this show. But I, it, maybe you're like, oh, no, I know exactly why I'm here. But I'll tell you why you're here. <laughs> Ooh, yes. Actually, I'd love to know. <laughs> so this show is a lot about um, good intentions, basically. Mm-hmm. Like unintended consequences of good intentions. And most of the time we talk about that in the context of politics, right? And also relationships. Mm-hmm. And specifically, mm-hmm. I think the kind of er story of this podcast is is what happens when well-meaning white people try to help. And <laughs> wow, like that's what your show's about too. I mean. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That, that's it. It's just a slightly different context. It's the, it's, it's the built environment rather than the political environment. Of course, those two things are pretty much the same. Now, right. So I guess I should I should start. I know why I am interested in utopias because because of the aforementioned reason. What brought you to utopias? So in, in the spirit of full disclosure, I mean, Curbed reached out to me and asked <laughs> me to do this series. So I wish I could be like, you know, I've been thinking about it and sitting about it, you know, sitting on it for a long time. But no, like Curbed brought it to my attention. And then the more reading I did and the more I think about it, I mean, it's just 
everywhere. It is so in the zeitgeist right now. I mean, last night I was listening to an interview with Margaret Atwood on the radio and everyone is just obsessed with the, uh, I mean, of course, we're all wondering about the future, right? Mm -hmm. We're all wondering about where this long arc of history is actually going. And we're all wondering if there's a way out, if there's an alternative, you know, if we can uh, go somewhere else, live in, in, in this, in this, it feels just like everywhere is burning and nowhere is safe. So where can you go? Can you go and make the kind of world that you would want to live in? I mean, the way I think about it all the time is like, can you can you nurture your nature? Can you become like we are so trapped right now? Um, well, we've always been trapped in uh, the circumstances of our birth, in the skin we were born in, in the social milieu we were raised in, our socioeconomic background. Uh, there's so much around trying to talk to each other through, in, around, about our identity politics. And I think part of the appeal of just building a whole new world is like, what if there was a place where you could just live, you know, mm -hmm. and like not deal with the history and the culture that you were born into and had no hand in, you know, like what if you could create a world that was entirely aligned with your values? So I actually think that there's another way that that works as a a way into like the connection between utopias and where we are right yeah. now, which is what is make America great again, but a call for a kind of utopia. That Oh, my God, you're so right. <laughs> you're so right. Well, really, because the other thing, right, that 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 again, so mm -hmm. much of utopias. We think about utopia as looking forward as these like futuristic visions, but really so much of them, um, you know, actually when Walt Disney World was was looking to build, when Walt Disney was looking to build Disney World, he basically had a commission of people research, like do this podcast, like research all of the utopian experiments that have been attempted in time and analyze them and realize, like, what went wrong and where they went awry. And one of the main takeaways was that they were all quite backwards-looking or mm -hmm. just in, like, a romantic way that everything was very agrarian. And it's like, oh, well, we'll just, like, raise our kids communally and we'll grow our own food. And, um, yeah, there's something about wanting a future that's in the past that you're you're so right. That's such a good point that make America great again. <laughs> Thank Arkans you. <laughs> it Ugh. is, though. It is. And I, you know, there's also, there's a pretty rich history of white nationalist movements also trying to found their own utopias, right? I mean, that's what white nationalism is. State of Jefferson, yeah. Um, yeah, Oregon. <laughs> I mean, <Yeah. laughs> maybe if people, for people who don't know, Oregon was established as a whites-only state. Um, and it has a history of, of, of never quite undoing that, I would say, actually. You could ask people of color who live there. Right. Same with suburbia. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it is, it is an unfortunate, perhaps, parallel, but an instructive one to look at Make America mm. Great Again and white nationalism in the context of utopias. And I was thinking about that before I actually even listened to your show. And then I listened to your show, and my God, the white people. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. There's a lot of white people in your show. Not, I mean, I'm not saying that critically. I'm saying, like, it's... Oh, no, the characters, the actors in history have right. been... Right, yes. and, and well-meaning, <laughs> a lot of well-meaning white people. Maybe people who we wouldn't, like Hitler, I don't know, we would consider what he was doing well-meaning, but... Well, he was building a utopia for yeah. someone. You know, in yeah. this interview last night that I was listening to with Margaret Atwood, she, she um, 
referenced her signature phrase, eustopia, which is that every dystopia is someone's utopia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like there's, which is why we called the first episode Utopia for Whom? Like Hitler was making a utopia, definitely, like for the people that he cared about. So totally, 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 totally. It's like people acting on behalf of. Well, people who, and you put, you, 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 you're, the last episode, which is about her land, kind of delves into all of this. But maybe mm-hmm. we should, let's backtrack a little bit, because I think there's one place in particular where um, the story of whiteness and the story of this particular med- political moment and the story of utopias mesh together in a really weird way, and that is Biosphere 2. <laughs> that's, yes. That's a story. Yeah, it's crazy. It seems to me, as a listener, that you really enjoyed telling that story. Oh, yeah. Like, Biosphere 2 wasn't even in the original plan for the season. And then I went to a conference there, and I was just like, stop the presses. We have to do this story. Like, this is definitely, definitely, definitely a failed utopia story that we need to talk about. And I would, you know, I feel like you could make, someone should go make a 14-part podcast series all about Biosphere 2. Like, we didn't cover, this was just the tip of the iceberg. Um, But it's about climate change. It's about the best intentions of white people. It's, I mean, it's nuts. It's totally crazy. Yeah. And Steve Bannon has a role. I mean, it's, it's. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. It's insane, like, just how, oh, and it's like people, you know, it's a bunch of white people, like, closing themselves off and thinking they can do things on their own, but having to cheat, you know? Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it, it mm-hmm. In, in, it's, to me, it, it is a story, of course, that, um, I guess all of these stories have certain things in common, right? What I see, besides the whiteness, is, like, arrogance, you know, um, yes, a lot hubris. Of hubris. <laughs> And that's easy to see. But I'm wondering, actually, did you find yourself being able to romanticize or empathize or seeing anything kind of like noble in these experiments? I mean, because I think that's the first instinct. And then there's like the wise guy instinct. No, these are noble. These are this is hubris and whatnot. But I'm wondering if there's like a even deeper kind of place to get where you're like, huh. I understand. Yeah, totally, totally. That was really important to me to not be like, oh, look at these weird freaks, to to, to really try to come from a place of empathy, mm-hmm. even, you know, for like, ugh, for Hitler. Like, I mean, not for Hitler, but just to right. try to understand why people build these crazy things and what's what's behind them um, and why and what their what their motivations were. And for many of these stories, there is kind of this shining moment where it's like, hey, that sounds that sounds quite nice. And it is very interesting to watch the similarities across all of them because um, it's like, yes, of course, there are a lot of big themes like uh, hubris and unpreparedness. But I think even systemically, a lot of it just has to do with these problems that we run into, these just like these these roadblocks that we are just going to run into over and over and over again as humans try to live with each other, like fundamental problems with how to get along. And fundamental problems, I think another huge reason a lot of these utopias fail. I mean, okay, so here, here are like some of my main takeaways from, from examining uh, a slew of utopias. One is like the problem of governance, right? I feel like for a lot of people, utopia means getting away from drama, and decision-making 
and arguments. They basically want to get away from politics. They're like, I don't want to worry about it. I just want to live my life. And I think the easiest way to not argue or fight or feel bitter with your neighbors is if you all agree to just, you know, single-mindedly follow the teachings of one charismatic white guy. Yeah. <laughs> and then you only have to make one decision, and that's the only decision you need. And then, you know, inevitably this person, like, uh, gets into legal, financial— Or dies or, you know, goes away. Dies, goes—right, <laughs> goes mad with power. Like, you invest everything in this one person, and then they go away, right? Or the other version is to, like, try to do everything by consensus. But then you get back into politics, and then you get into, like, eight-hour-long meetings, and everyone's like, oh, well, this isn't—this isn't utopia either. So one is just kind of, like, generally the problem of governance, right? And the the problem of, like, is there a way that we can— all live together and all get along. And then the other one is like a, a, another huge stumbling block for all these utopias is they want to create a new generation, whether that is like actually, mm. I mean, and that's where a lot of them get into like eugenics and, and, and like less savory methods. But the problem is always just like times change. They well, it's, just it's the do. next generation. Like morals change. Right? Like exactly. that's the problem is like how do you iterate? Yeah. And it's right. It's telling um the only utopia that you look at that is not somehow the brainchild of white men. And I hear even Chandragar, right, is actually right. No, it's white guys. Yeah. Is white guys designed it. Um it may have been the brainchild of a, you know, of um Nehru, but it was designed yeah. by white guys. So the only non-white guy designed utopia you talk about is Herland, which is fictional. <laughs> yes. And yeah. and it sustains itself because it's able to be fictional, right? Like yeah. they have yeah. literally like I think I was I was just listening to it and I remember reading it a long time ago, but I had forgotten. Oh really? Yeah, I mean feminist studies in college, you know. Um Yeah. And also, I'm I'm very interested in science fiction as a political project. I mean, I love science fiction just because spaceships and stuff too. But um, it's well, always. Did you think the book was kind of boring? Yeah, her. I mean, <laughs> no, the most it's interesting super book. Boring. She, I mean, Yellow Wallpaper gets its narrative drama from the fact that she's going insane. You know, I mean, right. like <laughs> she's not like a propulsive writer. I think by nature. So it's in all. <laughs> Also, as someone who reads a lot of um, dystopian and utopian fiction, especially specifically ideological dystopian and utopian fiction, I can tell you that monologuing (laughs) is like the it's the it's the main, you know, song in in most of those those stories. Like I'm actually just now reading for a project, I swear, Glenn Beck's books, um, thrillers, Ooh. which um are about how, you know, the US is gonna be felled by financial crisis because we have fiat currency and surveillance state and et cetera, et cetera. And um I've been counting oh the monologues. <laughs> because <laughs> what he just what happens is he just has characters come out and like give a speech about how what's happening in America you know like it's not like yeah <laughs> and that's yeah. And, and to to bring this back to Charlotte um, uh, Gilmore Perkins that's how um, a lot of utopian fiction works it's not even it doesn't have characters and drama it just has 
you it know. functions like an audio tour. It's like, yeah. here's our, here's how we make our food. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Like, here's how we procreate. <laughs> that's so interesting. And everyone's like, wow. Like, ima- yeah, imagine not- <laughs> of science fiction that's just world building. That's usually the backdrop for most science fiction. But, yeah. You know, yeah. so it's just explaining how things work. It's just like taking a <laughs> tour of, like, the sewer system, you know? Like, yes, if yes. you're into that kind of thing, like, <laughs> it could be fascinating. Yeah. But um, to get back to sort of the white people problem, um, yes, which is so there's a the replication thing is, I think, ultimately a white people problem, too. I mean, you point out at least the eugenics, but it's also the um, egocentricity of privilege of, th- of and, and of not being able to, to think about others as having their own distinct desires, wishes, points of view, whatever. Like you can't. As soon as you get out of, like, whatever hive mind has created your utopia, as soon as you start to bring in new people, especially children, you disrupt your narrative of privilege, right? Like, you you have no—you aren't able to control what they're doing. Huh. I guess—I mean, of course I see what you mean because all of these utopias are, as you said, like, extremely related to whiteness, but— Huh. I guess I'm trying to think. So you're saying that, like, when you're indoctrinating a new generation. Right. What you're doing. Yeah, wait, sorry. Just to, just so we're on the same page. How does that how does that track with with privilege? It tracks with privilege in that you can't like you, you can't imagine people not thinking and feeling like you. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, you yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of assume that your way of thinking and feeling is the norm. Right. Like that's what privilege right, is. Right. Privilege is invisibility. Yeah, exactly. Privilege is, is being the norm and not even knowing you're the norm. Right. Exactly. And exactly, so exactly. that's what's kind of that's sort of what utopias, especially again, like white people, utopias replicate from the society that they separated from is that they may have thought of themselves as different and non-centered and like eccentric and whatever in regular culture. But then they've gone off and founded a new culture where they're the centered ones. Right. Like, right, right. That's a really good point. And they really can't understand that other people might come in with different ideas. And that's why yeah, the Herland episode is fascinating because you do go into some real life, you know, um, uh, lesbian separatist communities, like talk about the history there. And yeah. I thought um, Shanta Smith-Cruz had a, such an interesting point when she talked about the difference between utopian thinking and separatist thinking. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, And the idea, right, that, like, we need to let go of this idea that there are these perfect places and these places that we can just, like, fix and make better. Um, And I really thought that it was an extremely, like, nuanced queer perspective to be like, look, there are places and things are good and things are bad and they're just different. They're not perfect. They're just another paradigm. But just on the subject of, of, of indoctrination, I just mm-hmm. have to say, like, something that I've thought about a lot in the course of this series, because, of course, I'm like, well, how would I make a utopia if I wanted to make one? And I've been thinking a lot about the Amish. Like, I've been thinking a lot about Rumspringa. Oh, yeah. Oh, interesting. Like, you'd, you'd, right? you'd, like you'd, you'd allow for a relief valve. That's how you do it. Totally. Totally. Because I feel like most people start, or at least the problem that everyone gets into, right, is there's this, like, new generation of either— new inductees or children and they're like traumatized and they feel weird and alienated from the outside world. So 
it, it just makes so much sense to, to be like, all right, well, why don't you come to this conclusion yourself and understand why we've made the rules we've made? Um, and it's just such a smart, smart idea. And I, I you know, I want to go interview some, some, some people. I mean, I, I have friends who, who've left those kind of communities, but I'm so curious to talk to someone who has gone back uh, yeah. and what, it, what that kind of release valve has meant to them. Because I think that's the other thing. Like, if you're trapped in a utopia, it's no better than being trapped in the world, right? Like, then your agency is taken away as well. And I think that's, in a way, the Rumspringa concept sort of tries to institutionalize the Shanta Smith-Cruz idea, right? Yes. Which is like creating a place for the chaos and a place for stuff that isn't utopian, you just say like, all yes. right, like we're going to allow a certain amount of that. And hopefully that'll be how we, you know, deal with it existing in the first place. We won't deny the existence of this other right. way of life, of this other kind of chaos. We'll just we'll let you go try it out. Right. No one really has time to go to the post office. You're busy. Who's got time for all that traffic, parking, lugging your mail and packages? It is a hassle. That is why you need Stamps.com, one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts that you cannot get at the post office. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer. Whether you're a small business sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7, any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it off in a mailbox. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. It's also a fraction of the cost of expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder that over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And right now, my listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com and click on the podcast microphone at the top of the homepage and type in friends. That's Stamps.com. Enter friends. Have you heard about the company making stylish shoes for women and girls out of recycled plastic water bottles? Yes, you have heard of them if you've listened to the show. It's Rothy's. They are insanely comfortable and they're machine washable. And I wore mine yesterday because although it was a beautiful day out, it has been rainy here and there was mud everywhere. And I was like, I want to wear like cute little flats with my jeans, but I know I'm going to step in mud. So, ah. I can wear my Rothy's. And I did. Um, I have the red camo pattern, which I have shown Karen in the studio here. She agrees they're very cool and very different. They make different styles all the time. They sell out all the time. If you are interested in a pair of Rothy's, you should probably get them as soon as you decide you like them. They come in a wide range of colors and patterns. They're available in four different silhouettes. And like I said, they're constantly launching new styles, so you're guaranteed to find a pair or two or three that you love. One Yahoo editor recently called them the most comfortable flats I've ever owned. And as you know, protesters who protest in their flats often wear Rothy's, people who we know and care about. They are the official shoe of protesters. Another major bonus, they're fully machine washable. I think I said that. Every time they need a refresh, you can simply toss them in the washing machine. It's like getting a fresh pair every laundry day. And they're also manufactured in a zero-waste factory. They ship directly 
in the shoebox, no unnecessary packaging. These are feel-good flats in more ways than one. Check out all the amazing styles right now at rothys.com slash WFLT. Go to rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash WFLT to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite, by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com streaming. I want to hear more about what you what utopia you would create, um, <laughs> but I also I'm in recovery, and so I was thinking about the AA model as a utopian model mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because you know it is essentially an anarchist organization. Like it doesn't have yes. leadership, and it maintains itself actually as a sort of sort of in a way it's a rumspring idea, which is that. You ha- it's um, um, the it's a program of attraction, not promotion. You have to want to belong. Like yes, no one can make you say you're an alcoholic. No one can make you join AA. And AA doesn't promote itself as a solution, right? Like right, right. You have to have decided. No, this is the thing for me. Like I'm going to do this, and that's how it's sort of like if it had to make money if it had to like promote itself like blah, you know it wouldn't work right so. right right <laughs> oh man it's so great you bring that up because i've been thinking a lot about this too especially cuz you know in the at the end of the series we basically kind of tie it up by talking about this concept of heterotopias the name is quite unfortunate because it does imply that it has something to do with straightness, but it doesn't. It's like hetero as opposed to homogeneity. Right. And heterotopias are places where that are just different from normal life, that are just like a special, like a a, a cruise ship or a sauna or, I mean, in the worst case scenario, it's like a jail. A sauna. Or just a place that's like, yeah, just somewhere somewhere when people are like, oh, you know, on the outside world, okay. blah, blah, blah. Somewhere right. that's seen as like a deviation right. from normal life where like norms are loosened up a bit. And I've thought about this a lot, especially reading. Did you read that uh, that viral Anne Helen Peterson article about millennial burnout? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, just thinking about how we, um, you know, now, I think a, a, a real thing that attracts people to utopias, especially like regressive, backwards-looking utopias, is some idea of community that we feel like we've lost, that we're like, oh, I just want to go to a place and everyone I love will be there and I won't have to work too hard for it. Because right now we right. live in these worlds where we're like cobbling together some semblance of a chosen family with like a series of coffee dates or like someone has to host (laughs) dinner or like throw a party and it's like oh like socializing is so difficult and so few of us belong to elks clubs or rotary clubs or churches or places where you can just go that's just a basement and you know everyone is going to be there and that's exactly what AA is it's like the perfect um, it's, a, it's a chosen I mean, no, community. No, it's not perfect. Nothing's perfect. No, right. It's a cho- exactly. It's a chosen. It's an, community. It is as they used to say about some of these places. It's an intentional community. 
Um, yes. And it's also, I mean, I was, that Anne Helen Peterson article, like, you know, it is both some, to some degree, an overt critique of capitalism and some degree, like it's just embedded throughout the article. But mm-hmm. to me, a lot of what these utopias have in common also is the desire to make people feel worthy without having them be tied to a particular worth, right? Yes. Like that everyone yes. is worth something, even if you're not producing, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I think about that all the time in the context of like whatever, Elks clubs and Rotary clubs and churches. And AA that you're actually not would be going another there example. To like, yeah. Exactly. NAA, you're not going there to like network or meet people in your cohort. You're just trying to figure out how to be better people. And like everyone has something to offer. It's so interesting. And I don't have any, I don't have anywhere like that. <laughs> well, you know, there's a 12 step program for everyone. So, I mean, I could probably find true. you. I could probably match make a 12 step <laughs> program for you. Um, but also like someone that who's is a one of my few remaining conservative friends, Tim Carney wrote a book called Alienated America. And um, he basically calls for church. And yeah. I, in a way, don't disagree I just think there needs to be a either. secular version. And I've, it, there, it's it's actually kind of sad. There are atheist communities that are trying to, like, do atheist church. Huh. It, it's just hard to create an infrastructure, I think, out of nothing, right? Yeah. Like, churches yeah. get to fall back on 2,000 years of <laughs> rules <laughs> and, and ideas and traditions Fundraising. And, you know, and whatnot. Um, but I, I think that that is definitely—I mean, I hate to—I sound like a conservative fuddy-duddy, but— the idea of a space where what you do is come together exactly to just try and figure out how to be of service to the world, like, yeah. is definitely missing right now. Totally. And I feel like part of what church is for is also just reckoning with fate and yeah. like talking about the things that are hard to talk about. Like, that's where you go to talk about death. And we need a place <laughs> to, like, talk about climate change and to to panic and just, like, be together holding that uneasy feeling, um, that feeling that the world is ending. And I, it's funny. Friends of mine have been like, oh, we need secular church. Like, we need, we need climate change church. We need some place where we can, like, think about fire and brimstone and, and like, whatever, sing about it and cry and just have that catharsis and figure out the, what the right thing to do is and reckon with and reckon yeah. with our brokenness you know and be loved anyway like like I happen to be a person of faith but not but I can tell you in some ways I feel like it's a cheat code to believe in God especially to believe in Jesus because I have this like underlying belief that I've been granted grace right like Oh, that's so lovely. I'm so <laughs> jealous of you. I know, you know what? I used to say that to people who, who were really? Christian. Yeah, I did. And then, in, well, I don't want to get too much into it, but like I, at some point I was kind of like, why not me? Like, why not like huh. have that? Why not believe that I've been saved? I mean. Wow. <laughs> and that's how belief works. Like you just believed in believing it. And then kind of, yeah. I mean, and then there's like the sober piece is a huge piece of it, too. Um, but yeah, sure, sure. Because, you know, like I should be dead and I'm not. So it's hard to turn that down as a gift um, and to right. not believe that there's some maybe reason I do not understand for still existing. But to get back to utopias and the oh, that's crisis. Incredible. <laughs> But to get back to utopias in the crisis of our current moment, 
what I do feel like is people um, do not have a sense that they can be redeemed. We just go around feeling our brokenness and aren't there for each other and don't have a higher power. So what we do is have like Friendsgiving, right? Like I'm not mocking that either. Yeah. It's I've I've done it. It's not just a millennial thing. Um, But people try to cobble together these chosen intentional communities. But because of capitalism, (laughs) kind of, like they're really hard to sustain. Then there's no infrastructure from them for them. Right. And that's why like we work and we live and like I'm trying to think of the other sort of like commercial attempts to do these sorts of the wing I mean I have friends yeah sure I have friends who are into all of those things and you know great but I think those are all treating symptoms of this like larger broken feeling well it's interesting that you use the word infrastructure because I really do believe that I mean to bring this back to the idea of politics and place that um the built environment is political. Oh, yeah. I think so much of this really does have to do with being rooted in a place um, because, you know, my my community, my dear, dear community of friends here in Oakland is like changing all the time because people have to leave, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one part of it is just like we're so atomized and spread out and chasing whatever dreams can can come our way through no fault of our own. It's just like work is hard and the economy is hard. But the other thing is is literally... Like, the infrastructure of where we live, um, I I mean, actually thinking in terms of, like, our electrical grids and our water supply and our our sanitation, you know, like, we— cause so much damage by living in community because these systems are so inefficient and extract so much energy from the earth, blah, 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 blah. Um, And so that's another thing um, that feels— like we're constantly atoning for it, that there are these larger systems that are so outside of ourselves. Right. um, And they are so abstracted to us and we don't feel like we're a part of them. Um, And I'm only thinking about this because last night I was was talking to a friend who's working on like alternative models for energy and municipal systems and working on like, should we have smaller, more localized power grids and gray water systems? Like, what would that do to our sense of community? And I really think that this is another thing that utopians are constantly working on. Like, and that's another reason utopias fall apart. They're just like, oh, no, what do we do with our trash? Like, what do we do with our water? Like, how do we take care of each other? And so it's this interesting thing that I really do feel like we need to like that is one of the most pressing problems in in the United States, in the world, yeah. in choosing the ways we want to live, and these systems that we that are so large and so binding that we still don't have any control over. If that makes any any right, sense and we don't have the language yeah. or the imaginative capacity to talk about them, in part because of actually going back to this lack of like spiritual community. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. how can you Mm -hmm. think about climate change if you don't have a spiritual community? Like, it's really well, to me, like, it's so overwhelming. It's so like, I actually don't mean like you can't like, it's not like you can't think about it, but the will to to solve it, the will to like be a part of the the solution for it, to me, has to come from a, a place that I will call spirituality, you know, a hope, a faith, right? Because if you just look at the numbers, it's hard to have either of those. 
right? Right, right. So right. even if it's a, a— Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so even if it's like a secular kind of hope or kind of a, a belief that no humans can do this, like that's a faith. That's a form of faith. Because we have not have proven you seen ourselves. First reformed? We have not proven ourselves. We don't have a good track record as far as whether or not we can do this, right? So you're you're you to believe that we can do something is an act of faith. And I think we would all be more inclined to be active in climate change, more inclined to think about it, to be able to ponder it, if we did it in community and in a community that also was acting out of faith. Oh my wait, have you seen First Reformed? Not yet, no. Ah, you you simply must. You simply must. <laughs> like, ah, and I just want to, like, call you and talk about it. Okay. Because it, I think we're going to look back on it as the first climate change film. And it's oh, a deeply religious That is not film. how it's I a, read the to trailers <laughs> at all. Yeah. No, so. the trailers make it look like more of a thriller, but it's really, like, climate change is a character. Like, the villain huh. and the stakes and everything is about climate change. And it's about, like, people of varying degrees of faith reckoning with what is the apocalypse. Um, and it, it's, it's, I was profoundly moved by it. I thought it was strange and gorgeous and it's definitely not a perfect movie, but I think it's all the better for that. Um, but yeah. And I, and I think this also goes back to the idea of like, oh my God, I mean, everything's come, comes, comes, everything's folding in on itself, but I feel like it also comes back to this idea of politics that people are like, oh, we disagree so much. And like, how can I live in a world that's free from strife and free from arguments? And I have to make all these decisions. Um, and I think that's another thing, of course, that like dovetails with climate change and these infrastructural mm-hmm. changes that like we do, these changes are too big to make on our own. So we have to figure out a way to get along and like, how do we get along? And maybe it is all finding our own guiding principles and coming to each other from a place of love and support. And yeah. not to not to get too like media junkie on you, but of course this also reminds me of um Fleabag season two. Have you seen it? <laughs> this is just turning into like a recommendation podcast. <laughs> ah, but it's all about faith. Like everything is about faith right, right now. To me, not surprising, like considering where we are. Right. Um, and I wanted to bring this actually back to built environment a little bit, which is, I don't know if I can connect it directly to faith, but this idea of being able to think big thoughts and being able to process like your, literally your environment, Right. Like, I Mm. I think about people that I know who will tell you, yes, I understand that climate change is happening. Yes, I think we should do something about it. I'm, you know, recycling. (laughs) And I I vote. And even even people who know that that's not that big a deal, but who are like, and I vote for the right people and whatnot. It is so hard to then take a step back in your everyday life and be like, well, where do I live? Right? Yeah. Do I live in a house with a yard? Right. How many airplane right. trips do I take every year? Like, right. Because if you're someone with even a little bit of knowledge about climate change, you you, you may know the answers to those questions are pretty uh, guilt-producing, right? Right. Everything. How much meat do I consume? Where You know, all the trash that I produce, just everything. We're just producing, producing, producing. And yeah. because we don't have a spiritual community to help us work through feelings of guilt and shame and to feel like we are loved no matter what, we prefer just to not to think about the things that make us feel guilty. Oh, that is such an interesting point. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I, I think I, it's I true. Think, yeah. 
Oh, that's really, really interesting. Because, you know, when you ask, like, what would my utopia be? I'm like, oh, well, my utopia would be, like, some sort of, like, zero impact, zero waste community. But that does come, because I I have been trying uh, to be zero waste myself, and it definitely comes from this, like, place of shame. It feels like I, I'm I'm not. I was raised Jewish. I'm not very religious now, but it, it has this very like Catholic feeling to it. I'm very like repentant mm-hmm. all the time and very guilty, um, you know, and guilty to live in this world where someone offers me a plastic cup and, you know, I'm just like, oh, what is, what a shameful what a shameful world this is. And I do think I think you're right. I think it would be more productive and better to just like live in a to first forgive everyone. Yeah. And forgive myself and then move forward from there. Holy shit, are you converting me? What is <laughs> happening right now? I could, we could just go the 12 step direction too, because that's a real important project and the tw- real important concept in the 12 steps is that really you have to, you cannot start to do good in the world. You, it is very difficult to be of service to others. It is very difficult to clean up your own side of the street if you're still carrying guilt and shame. Like, you can't begin to atone or make amends for your past if you haven't forgiven yourself for it. Which is so great because it also, you know, naturally implies that you are looking at your past and you are <laughs> reckoning with your history and seeing it for what it is, which is something that none of these utopias that we talk about in the show yeah. really did. You know, it was all about like plowing forward and asking forgiveness, not permission, and like, we're not prepared, but whatever, let's let's go with it. And that there is something in between about like, all right, well, let's learn some lessons. Let's prepare. Let's like, yeah, be, move, reckon, reckon with the past and, and like forgive yourself for it so that we can move on. Yeah. Like, that's why we learn history. Yeah. Well, the, the saying in AA is we will neither regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Um, which I think sort of sums up what you're saying, which is that being able to use the past properly, right? Yeah. Like, and and instead of fictionalizing it, which is the Make America Great Again utopia, is like— Right, yes. —not the past at all. It's not about a past. It is a completely invented future. Yeah. Third Love bras fit better than other bras. They use data points generated by millions of women who have taken their Fit Finder quiz to design bras with breast size and shape in mind for a perfect fit and premium feel. And I would not normally say this in public, much less on a podcast, but I did not wear a Third Love bra today, and I regret it. And it makes me very glad I have a female engineer in the booth because I have been having to, you know— make myself comfortable in my bra pretty much constantly all afternoon. And I usually actually wear a third love bra to record. It's not always like, oh, I'm going to do an ad, so I should wear this bra, but they just happen to be my favorite bras. Rest shape matters. That is actually something that I feel like Third Love has actually incorporated into not just their marketing, but, you know, the actual design. So there, there are bras that are better for the bell shape. There are bras that are better for a more, I guess, pert shape. I'm more in the bell category myself because um, I'm getting old. But anyway, you will find the perfect bra, again, with their Fit Finder, and you won't have any stranger looking at your girls to tell you what kind of bra you should have. You can do it in the comfort and privacy of your own home. It's a very quick quiz. It's 60 seconds. It's kind of fun, even. 
And if you're skeptical about getting a bra that fits from an online quiz, you have 60 days to wash it, wear it, put it to the test. And if you do not love it, you can return it and third level wash it and donate it to a woman in need. They also have people, you know, on the phone who you can talk to if you want, if you're one of those people that talks to other people. Um, I preferred the quiz. It is sincerely the most comfortable bra you'll ever own. And Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. And right now they are offering my listeners 15% off their first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash friends to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash friends. The Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin believes fundamentally in the power of dialogue, the need to work together, and the promise of an engaged citizenry. Government works best when we, the citizens, engage. We all have a role and responsibility to shape the communities in which we live. This is about civic vigilance. So if you're ready to harness your passion and understand the environments and the policies in which we live or die, enter the arena of public service. Find out more about LBJ's School of Domestic and Global Policy degree programs at lbjschool.info friends or find them on social media at the LBJ School. So I want to figure out a way to like for us to kind of land this plane gracefully together. Um, And I do want to talk about your utopia. I think that's the way I think that's the way to go. You already mentioned it's going to be zero waste. And maybe let's talk more about your specific utopia. But I do have one burning question for you. Yeah. Which is having looked at all these different utopias, if you had to choose one to live in, which would it be? Mm. Well, I can't say her land because that's uh, that's not real. Um, you can say her land. I, I mean, I, you know, yeah. I mean, although it's more interesting if you say one of the others because the other ones. No, I really, I genuinely think it's Oneida. Like the early stages of Oneida before it all went crashing down, um, considering how progressive it was in the context of its times, um, as a as a free love utopia. You know, everyone kind of like laughs and giggles and it sounds very, um, you know, like woo-woo and titillating kind of ahead of its time and titillating. But really like thinking about what this meant, how hamstrung women have been historically by marriage and that this was a way for women to just live as individual units, which was impossible. And this point was really brought to the fore when they decided to not be a free love cult anymore. And they turned into a company and everyone had to start getting married to each other. And then there were like winners and losers. Like some women got wealthy husbands and some women didn't get married at all. And they were impoverished because they couldn't get jobs, you know, and suddenly they had all these children to support. And uh, it's just really illustrative of, of um, yeah, how important that autonomy was, not just for, like, pleasure, but just to, like, <laughs> live, a, live a life. Um, it's really interesting. I was really intrigued by that one. So Oneida was a religious community that believed in free love and that women and men were pretty much equal in all regards. They did everything together. They did hard labor together. They did housework together. And, um, you know, they were all just sort of these children of God. And they had various industries. This is another interesting thing about all the utopias. They still exist within capitalism, by and large. And Mm -hmm. so they still have to, like, find a way to make money and produce stuff. And so they created 
this line of silverware that was more affordable because it wasn't completely silver. It was stainless steel dipped in silver. So it was this very American product that like looked expensive, but it wasn't as expensive. Also a good metaphor and- for utopias. Totally, totally, mm-hmm. totally. Yeah. And um, and the silverware just like, it's still around today. If you turn over your forks and knives, sometimes they say Oneida. Sometimes they say, if they're old, they'll say community plate on them. And uh, basically, you know, the thing happened that always happens in communities. They were led by this one leader. He went off the rails. He fled to Canada. And then in the aftermath of that, they turned their religious free love community into a company. And they split up their communal house into apartments and they paid all their members out in shares. And then everyone was like, all right, let's do it. We're doing monogamy now. And then they became this like kind of (laughs) traditional family values company. And it's still like the president of Oneida is still a descendant of the community. Like the, the fun twist in the story of the episode is you find out at the end that everyone was related in this in this family that also had some like freaky eugenic stuff that was like Ugh. but in the early initial days they were really seen as freaks for mm-hmm. having like their women had short hair and they were like out there you know working working bloomers in factories also right yeah bloomers yeah and Wacky. so um that that was really like um, given the context of the times if i could live live in like, what was it, like the 1860s. Be like, Mm -hmm. sign me up. That sounds amazing. And I'm also curious if doing this show, looking at all these places um, that really force you to grapple with some these big questions about hubris and whiteness and privilege and um, the future, uh, our future and their future. Did you have anything change for yourself? Did you... Did, did doing this, like, make you think something different or change something about the way you look at the world? Yeah. No, it really did. Um, actually, the cool thing was I, I was invited to give a talk about queerness at the EPA, which is funny, for, like, Pride Week in San Francisco. And thinking about these episodes really informed informed that talk because what it taught what all these stories can teach us is that no one knows what how the future is going to unfold, right? And it goes back to everything you're saying about, like, the hubris and the privilege of being like, this is the way the world is. I know the way the world is. I know the best way. And not being willing to be adaptive or open to change or listen to other people. And I think we're all seeing this, you know, as the very climate itself, as the very world we live in is shifting in unpredictable, unknowable, unforeseeable ways that we have to remain, like, we have to remain elastic and we have to remain open-minded. And so much of this is not about retreating and trying to find our own utopias, you know, oh, go buy property somewhere in the land, but by trying to make, trying to be as open-minded to as many people as possible, whether it means, like, trying to not eat meat or trying to, like, clean, trying to, you know, not produce so much waste or using people's preferred pronouns. Even though these new practices might seem strange or weird or uncomfortable for you, it's really about, like, suppressing your norms um, and the world that, the way you think the world is or has been historically and just kind of, like, move blindly and boldly sometimes gracefully, sometimes gracelessly into this, like, dark, unknowing future. But doing it together. Yeah. 
You know, it occurs to me, hearing you say that, and I also had this thought listening to that Herland episode, that in some ways the very concept of utopia is, as the kids say, problematic. Um, oh, yeah. Because it, it, there is no utopia without some kind of oppression or coercion, you know? Exactly. There is no utopia without dystopia. Someone is experiencing a dystopia if it's a utopia, like Margaret mm-hmm. uh, Matt would, would say. And that when we are tempted to try and imagine a utopian future even, not necessarily utopian community, just even a, a, a utopian future, like let's say make America great again, like we are automatically are, are on a path of exclusion, of again repression. Um, we are we are we're going to have to make people do things, you know, and have right. to like imp- impose our will in some way. And so, the impulse to just be like, no, you know, rather than utopia, I will think about, and I agree. I will think about using the right pronouns that someone asks for. I will <laughs> I will make this small change that maybe makes me a little uncomfortable, makes this moment less utopian for me, right? Right, 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 right. But, exactly, unless we all live in a future where we're all just wearing our own VR helmets and just like, yeah, living in our own reality. It's just the way it has to be. We need to be accommodating. That maybe... <laughs> <laughs> Super corny, but like maybe the the way to create a more welcoming future, a more okay, I'll use the word utopian future, is to actually focus on being <laughs> uncomfortable ourselves. Yes, ding 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 ding. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you just like I I was rambling on and on, and that's the whole yeah. Yep, that's it. Because the more we can tolerate our own discomfort. Like, then maybe the better the world will be for other people. It'll be more mm-hmm. utopian for them, if not for us. Yeah. Yes, like- exactly. It means eschewing the idea of utopia and understanding that things will not be perfect. Yeah. So, again, I was going to ask about your utopia, but now I feel like that would be branding both of us as kind of exclusionary <laughs> and oppressive. <laughs> <laughs> so instead, I'll ask you, of all the people that you met— historical figures that you met, um, who would you be willing to enter Biosphere 2 with? Oh, geez. <laughs> like people who I've met in my life. No, no, no. Well, I meant actually in the story, in, in the, the pro- utopian stories, because the- yeah, I, I wouldn't know anyone in your life, but I've listened to the podcast. Too. I know. I was like, oh, yeah, my friend. Um, Is there anyone you could tolerate? Oh, they were all so amazing. But of course I would want to be with Irene Bedard, who played Pocahontas. She's incredible. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, uh, people—we sort of skipped over the fact that Jamestown is the first episode, the founding utopia of America. Um, yeah, she seems pretty fucking cool, I have to say. So, yeah. 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 I would, I would and like, who could get tired of that voice? No one. Yeah, I would party with you guys in, in Biosphere, too. That sounds like Oh, a, yeah, for sure. Like You're invited. Time. Thank you so much, Avery. I, I, and your podcast is fantastic. I sort of suspect that a lot of people who listen to this one will probably have listened to yours. But if not, they really need to. Thank you so much, Anna. And that is it for the show. And we did talk about the importance of making yourself uncomfortable. But you know what that doesn't mean? It doesn't mean you shouldn't take care of yourselves. So do. So do. 